2: recent olympics have gone particularly badly i think for those cities so this sort of exceptionalist claim la you know la bid people are making of like we'll be the ones to fix it and solve it it's like we'll look at all the other problems in our city that we can't fix or solve and people aren't even attempting to fix or solve because they're too preoccupied with having a big party that costs a lot of money Mm -hmm. uh and nobody will be able to get into except rich people
0: Welcome to the Edge of Sports podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week, I am going to break down why the Golden State Warriors are almost certainly not going to visit Donald Trump's White House. Also, we're going to speak to No Olympics LA organizers Anne Orchier and Molly Lambert. And if the name Molly Lambert sounds familiar, she's also a journalist for MTV News, formerly with Grantland, and really one of the best nonfiction writers that I know. And so so excited to talk to Anne and Molly about why they're organizing against the Olympic bid. Also, I got to Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. So happy to give them both this week, as you will hear. People I really want to raise up and someone I really want to smack down. I also got some words about the Conor McGregor-Floyd Mayweather fight because of course I do. Because I'm almost required legally to have a take on that. And I got a special question for listeners at the very end. But first and foremost, let's talk some Warriors. And now I've got some choice words about the Golden State Warriors and the possibility or probability that they will not visit the Trump White House now that they are the 2017 NBA champions. Okay. On November 10th, 2016, the Cleveland Cavaliers were due to visit the White House. Of course they were. They'd just won the championship a few months earlier, and they were in town to play the Wizards, so they were going to stand with President Obama and do the traditional photo op. Now, before they arrived, forward Richard Jefferson posted the following prediction on social media. He wrote, Words cannot express the honor I feel being the last team to visit the White House tomorrow. Remember, the election had just happened a couple of days before. And Jefferson's point, of course, was that no NBA team would do a photo op in the White House as long as the space was occupied by Donald Trump. That prediction could become prophecy, but not quite yet. It was widely reported following a single tweet from an unverified account that the Golden State Warriors, amid the hoopla of winning the 2017 NBA title, had voted unanimously that they would not visit this White House. The idea, in retrospect, that this could have happened so quickly before the champagne even dried on the locker room floor should have strained credulity. Yet the report circulated with viral speed, and were soon treated as fact by Newsweek, Vibe, The Independent, and many other news sources and journalists blessed with the blue check mark of Twitter. It moved so quickly from unsourced tweet to reality that House Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi within hours issued an invitation to host the team in Washington D.C. if they did not want to go to the White House. It's an amazing media story, really. After the news made the rounds, the Warriors released the following statement: Today is all about celebrating our championship. We have not received an invitation to the White House, but we'll make those decisions when and if necessary, end quote. Look, it is understandable why so many news feeds thought that this story must be true. Because if any team would publicly and collectively decide not to make it to the White House, it would be these Warriors. I mean, the number of players who have spoken out against Trump Is impressive. David West, who's a reserve but one of the most respected people in the NBA, this is what he said in January, and I really think this is kind of beautiful. He said, All the tactics that Trump used to get elected are the very things that someone like me, who works with youth on a consistent basis, are trying to talk to our young folks out of being. We try to talk to our young people out of being bullies. We try to talk to our young men out of disrespecting women. We try to talk our young people into being accepting of other people's opinions and other people's walks of life, end quote. Now, West, as I said, has hardly been alone. Steve Kerr called Donald Trump a blowhard, and even star player Steph Curry was asked in February if he agreed with Under Armour CEO Kevin Plank that Trump was a, quote, real asset to the country. And Curry, who is the face of Under Armour, said, if you remove the E.T. from asset... Now, since this rumor, this unfounded rumor made the rounds about the Warriors not visiting the White House, Draymond Green has come forward and said, no, he has no interest in going to the White House. Andre Iguodala has come forward and said, no, he has no interest in visiting the White House. It also has to be noted that the Warriors play in Oakland, a place that has seen a terrifying resurgence of white nationalist organizing, and Trump has pointedly not condemned this violence. Those forces represent a threat to the lives and peace of mind of every person of color in the Bay Area, including basketball players whose families walk those streets. It also absolutely needs to be noted that the Trump administration has not yet issued an invitation to these warriors, and I bet they don't, which would be a major break of protocol, but it really would be something if he did, because who honestly would show up? I mean, it might be team owner Joe Lacobt, holding a jersey, and that jersey would probably be the number zero. Look, these are not normal times, and this is not a normal president, at the risk of stating the utterly obvious. Trump, as the media chases the implications of his latest garbled tweet, is methodically serving a hidden agenda in darkness. If sunlight is indeed the best disinfectant, then the warriors could play a role in fumigating the White House who sent is indeed wafting across the world. And they are absolutely right, even if it's just one at a time, for refusing to go to this White House. Maybe they didn't take a big vote in the locker room, but I truly believe at this point that the message has been duly sent. And i got to end the choice words here by referencing a column by Sally Jenkins of the Washington Post. I know Sally. She's been a guest on the show in years past. And she wrote one of my favorite books, but all those good works don't change the fact that she wrote something so god-awful wrong when she wrote that in the wake of the Alexandria, Virginia shooting of Republican congressional leader Steve Scalise, that the Warriors should go to the White House as an act of social activism to show that we are not so divided in this world and she referenced the fact that a quote-unquote Sanders supporter being the person who shot at Steve Scalise just shows how an effort must be made on both sides. Look, this is a horrific line of argument. First of all, this idea that there's a collective guilt on the left because of one 58-year-old nut with a gun is absolutely absurd and obnoxious and ridiculous. I gotta just say that straight off the bat. It makes me sick that they're trying to do this, particularly when you think of the violence that's been inflicted on people like Richard Collins III in College Park. Secondly, the idea that it's on a basketball team to build the bridge to Donald Trump and not the president of the United States to build the bridge. Are you kidding me? And lastly, my goodness, the Warriors have every right to not be part of a photo op for an administration That actually stands for a set of principles that they oppose. So, Sally Jenkins, i got to give you the big L on this one. Uh, This is not the way to go. We are back on the Edge of Sports podcast. And now, an interview that I think you will absolutely find fascinating with no Olympics LA organizers, Anne Orchier, and journalist Molly Lambert. And my first question's for you, uh, just straight up, where are we with the LA Olympics? What do you think? Do you think Los Angeles is going to get them? Will it be 2024 or 2028? What's the latest forecast?
3: So uh, as far as we can tell, all signs point to LA getting the Olympic bid for 2028 in September. Um, The tricky thing about navigating this particular situation is uh, first of all that it's completely unprecedented for the IOC to award two cities at once so we don't have any reference point for how this thing typically works out uh, and of course there's also the fact that the IOC um, is completely unaccountable and they get to decide their own processes and rules so the reality is for all we know they could throw everything they've discussed up in the air and announce something completely different in September. Mm. Uh, from a purely logical, rational, predictive standpoint, it, it seems most likely that they would uh, award Paris for 2024, um, just given the hard line that Paris has put forth about wanting that year um, and not accepting a 2028 bid, plus the kind of sentimental and optics-based argument for having it in Paris that year because of their centennial, um, but you know, you never know some dictatorial city in Russia could come in with a really great offer for them and they could give them the 2028 or 2024
0: bid. Well, they, they do seem to favor those dictatorial outposts yeah. so they can get it done and get it done with extreme prejudice. Um, Molly, first and foremost to you, I have a Olympic question for you, but just to establish where you're coming from. Um, is is this LA Olympics issue for you, Molly, something that you came towards as as an activist like, oh, Olympics, hell no. How do I get involved? Or was this something where you started to investigate it as a journalist and just did not like what you were undercover, what you were um, uncovering?
2: Um, I mean, I was just uh, in this group of people that were sort of investigating the Olympic bid and what is so Kind of corrupt about the IOC as an institution. Uh, there's a lot of interesting kind of journalistic angles on what's wrong with the Olympics. Um, but mostly, just as a as a LA resident and as somebody who's grown up in LA, I thought it was just uh, sort of an interesting way to bring attention to a lot of issues in LA that we think are just a lot more important than getting the Olympics here and just sort of the idea of that. People are willing to spend so much money on something that is so frivolous when we have a lot of real issues in the city, uh, especially homelessness, that are very visible and apparent to anybody who comes here. Uh, that just are so much more pressing.
0: Mm. And, and and for you, if someone like in, in an elevator was like, okay, they you know they see your button and they say, why should I be against the Olympics coming here? What do you hit them with first and foremost?
3: First and foremost, I would say just that the entire process as it stands now is um, pretty spectacularly undemocratic. So, you know, we would assume that anything that operates both at this scale and this level of, uh, of sort of secrecy um, and elitism that the Olympic bidding process does would be something to be concerned about. You know the fact that this is a multi-billion-dollar, multi-year, and in some cases, you know, decade-long process. uh, You know, of of selecting the city and then like planning out the the hosting process. um, That's really in the hands of maybe like 150 of the world's most wealthy and powerful people, and it's something that affects the the residents of a host city for years and years and years after the bid happens and after the games happen um and so you know just to start with uh that would be my most general concern and then everything kind of comes out of there
0: Mm. and and molly this question is is going to be a little odd but i hope you bear with me here um it's I've been covering the Olympics since two thousand and four. I guess was the first one I covered and one thing I've always seen is the way the Olympics can scar a city, change a city um turn a city really into something that it wasn't before and I'd feel like I've been reading your writings about l a for so long. You mentioned that you were uh, you know born and raised l a native that rarest of of individuals and what I mean, you write about L.A. in a way that makes me see it as this kind of dirty, magical, amazing, awful, amazing, amazing, (laughs) amazing place. Um, What is it about L.A. that is magic to you? And what are your concerns about what the Olympics could do to L.A.?
2: Well, I mean, I think what makes L.A. a great city are the residents and everything about the Olympic bid is geared around uh, not democratically what people in LA actually want and not asking them and not trying to see what would actually benefit the city. And it seems, you know, in a way that LA things can be, sometimes this seems like sort of a big, uh, theatrical production that superficially, you know, is very spectacular, but really has nothing underneath it. It kind of represents a lot of just corruption, uh, you know, international corruption. And uh, it just seems like it is, uh, you know, people are pushed, it's being pushed on people because of the 84 Olympics and because of, you know, trying to force nostalgia for the 84 Olympics. But, um, you know, we've just been talking a lot about this in our campaign, which is that we really think the 84 Olympics were, in a lot of ways, just the beginning of, uh, the big ramping up of police militarization in LA mm-hmm. that everybody is now familiar with because it has swept the country. And, uh, you know, it gave them an excuse to kind of bring in SWAT teams and their, uh, and to do things like Operation Crash and Hammer. And so, you know, we, we think it's one of those things where if you just kind of look a little deeper, anyone can really see that what this is about is not benefiting the city. It's not about benefiting the residents of the city. It's about the egos of billionaires that Mm -hmm. want to put something on their resume and that don't care what happens to the people and don't care if people get displaced and don't care about, you know, what's very important to us is that one of the things they would do is be handing over the keys to the city, basically, to Department of Homeland Security, which uh, is just a terrible idea. For a lot of reasons, so yeah, as somebody who cares about LA, I think that I just uh, have become really passionate about this because it kind of brings a lot of these issues that are under under the rock. Kind of, if you lift up the rock, there's like a, a lot of bugs underneath. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, you mentioned the homeland security issue, and that of course was less of an issue in 1984. That was more of like a Daryl Gates operation, as as ugly as that was. But Homeland Security also brings with it the specter of ICE and immigration. Can can you speak a little bit about how that intersects with why Angelinos should oppose the Olympics? And that question's for, for either of you.
2: Sure, I'll start and then let Anne continue. Uh, well, we've been having a lot of really awful raids constantly uh, since sort of the the Trump presidency. We've been having a lot of just really illegal, poorly conducted, raids in people's homes and just a horrible environment of paranoia encouraging people to sell each other out and to call ice on people and so people are afraid to report issues with landlords that they have they're afraid to report domestic violence it is a horrible environment of paranoia and fear and you know to just uh talk about bringing in more national dhs stuff uh, in the future, it just seems like something that nobody wants except the people that want this Olympics because they want to put a feather in their cap on their resume. Mm.
3: Um,
2: and Anne, I'll let you...
3: Oh, sure. So um, so I should mention, too, so, this, so no, the No Olympics campaign and working group started from the Democratic Socialists of America, uh, Los Angeles chapters, Housing and Homelessness Committee. I know that's a mouthful, but I want to make sure I... Um, give full credit uh, so another working group within our chapter is the sanctuary city working group which has been um, more broadly focused on immigrant rights in la but very specifically zeroing in on the fact that our mayor eric garcetti has not declared la a sanctuary city um, which means that there is no actual um, enforceable codified you know, standard against ICE agents collaborating with the LAPD right now. He's made several sort of personal statements saying that he is personally against that and he doesn't want that to happen. But he hasn't really done anything official to you know to make it illegal. Um, is it
0: possible, the- Anne, that this is connected to the Olympics? That he knows that Homeland Security would have to be a major part of the bid and so by expressing it but not codifying it it's actually connected to the bid or is that too conspiratorial
3: that's what we think i mean for for me once we started digging into more to the olympics and learning more about the bid and knowing that for him this um this nsse designation is a really huge part of what allows him to make this you know financially risk-free claim about the games because it hands off the two 2 to $3 billion security costs to the federal government. Because when I first found out about the fact that he hadn't declared LA a sanctuary city, I was really shocked. I think like most people in LA and most people in the country. And I could not for the life of me figure out why he wouldn't do that. Just because from an optic standpoint, it's really good, you know, for a mayor of a liberal city to do that. It doesn't actually mean that much. Um, But then once we started you know, looking into the Olympic bid, it started to make sense and motives started to become more clear because in order to carry off these Olympics under budget, which is his big promise, he needs billions of dollars from the federal government. And he needs, uh, you know, the federal law enforcement agencies like the Department of Homeland Security to cooperate with him.
0: And, And another question for Anne, but Molly, please chime in if you know this too as well. But Every time there's an Olympic bid, it's almost like there there are two faces of who's trying to bring it in. You've got – or I should say two layers. Uh, you've got the movers and shakers, the billionaires, the people who are, who are trying to do this. Um, and then you've got sort of like the famous people, the people who are smiling for the cameras and doing these little videos. The way you, in Boston they had like David Ortiz being like, Olympics, great, you know, and – and so who in L.A., who is the face of this bid? Who are some of the people of of fame, if you will, who are stepping forward to be part of the PR team? And, and who are the real movers and shakers?
3: I think actually in our case, in some ways, they're the same person uh, mainly. Uh, and actually, I think Molly can speak to this one a little bit better than me. Uh, but Casey Wasserman, who is the head of the bid committee in L.A., and he's also sort of a combination of a kind of a Local hometown hero. Um, and he is also the person who is the. They've also brought in like Dr. Dre and people. Yeah, a couple of like famous athletes. I think like they, ha- it's sort of unclear what their relationship is with the bid. And they're not, they've brought in a few celebrities who aren't as closely identified um, with the bid and the sort of, you know, public relations arm of it. Like I think Serena Williams has been in a couple videos. Um, but like,
2: yeah, they brought in some comedians and stuff to do some of the the promotional videos. I mean, I think that's a big part of it in LA too, is sort of the optics of like, oh, we've got famous people on board because we're LA. Um, but you know, what we're really saying is like, this is, this is not about sort of people who want to have their face on screen, who want to be on camera, you know, getting accolades for things like this. We're really just concerned with how this would affect the really vulnerable residents of LA, of which there are a lot, you know, whether those are people who are below the poverty line or people who have immigration status that, you know, is vulnerable or threatened. And those are not the people you are seeing in
3: the shiny
2: Olympic bid commercials.
3: Right. Casey Mm. Wasserman and Serena Williams are going to be fine, uh, regardless of what happens with the Olympics. If they go over budget or under budget, if we have tanks roaming through the streets, they're going to be fine.
0: Isn't it a little odd that some of these names you've mentioned, Eric Garcetti, uh, Casey Wasserman, those last names are probably very familiar to people. Yeah, I
2: mean, this is definitely – it's about like
0: political and economic aristocracy aspect to bring yeah. in this in. Can you speak a little about the Garcetti and Wasserman families and the well, intersection?
2: absolutely. Garcetti is the, the son of uh, – the other Garcetti of Gil Garcetti, who is a famous L.A. politician who was sort of known at, uh, as a public figure for the O.J. trial um, for being unable to get O.J. convicted. And uh, Casey Wasserman is a grandson of Lou Wasserman, who is a uh, a famous Hollywood agent who uh, started an agency that was sort of funded using a lot of uh, mob money Um, And or I think he was an MGM guy.
0: I mean, he effectively was like one of those most powerful people in Hollywood types, right? Yeah,
2: and I mean, there's definitely a thing in LA where those types of people also want to be a little bit famous for being that type of person. Mm -hmm. It's not enough for them to be billionaires. They also want to be celebrity billionaires. And so I think, you know, it's very obvious what's in this for Garcetti and Casey Wasserman, which is themselves getting... more fame and publicity for themselves and you know we've really taken garcetti to task a lot about sort of being a hollywood mayor who shows up for publicity
3: stunts but who puts batman on city hall yeah he
2: put batman on city hall yesterday and uh we were we were making jokes about you know batman is also a a billionaire who (laughs) helps the
3: cops right um (laughs) takes vigilante justice into his own he's kind of like it's like batman's not that interesting in this Day and age of like Peter Thiel and yeah, uh, there's a lot of you know bili- vigilante
2: billionaires are not not your friends. <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, I think uh, I think they're really trying to push the idea of that powerful and famous people want this, and there's nothing you can do about it if mm-hmm. you're just a regular Angelino who mm-hmm. doesn't want to be deported or doesn't want to be displaced from their neighborhood because of rent increases. Um, And we don't think that's true. We think that the people have power and the Boston campaign was really inspiring to us in terms Mm -hmm. of people being able to overturn a bit of this thing that they present to you as this runaway train that you have nothing to do with, that you can't stop. Um, And we feel like, uh, you know, if enough people don't want it, maybe it can be stopped.
0: Right. you okay. expect a referendum in a lot of cities, they have done that and that's been a major tool in actually turning back Olympic bids. Uh, any 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 sense that Garcetti would either do that or would respond to pressure to do that?
3: Um I think so that's something we've been thinking a lot about. Uh, something I was thinking about earlier when Molly was talking about uh, what she loved about LA and what made it magical. Um, you know as a transplant, one of the things that. I've really responded to about LA is the amount of uh, political conversation that happens here. The fact that we are voting constantly um, as annoying and messy as it can be. And, <laughs> but just, just the idea that there are, we vote frequently and we vote on a lot of things, which is something that makes this whole bidding process all the more bizarre that, you know, less than a year ago, we were voting on uh, what to do about plastic bags And the fact that we have no say in the Olympics is very strange. And I think there would be a lot of appetite to have some kind of vote or referendum. Um, We think it should be statewide because the way the bid is structured right now, the entire state could be affected by the games. Um, The taxpayer guarantee says that LA is responsible for covering up to $250 million of the cost. And then beyond that, it goes to the state. So, and that's something that it seems like a lot of people, in the state don't know about. Um, That's what the referendum in Boston was focused on. So, you know, we think if there was going to be one uh, that would be, you know, to have it be statewide and and focused on that would probably be the most viable thing.
0: And and, and one last uh, Olympics related question is what can people do to get involved? Uh, People who aren't even necessarily from L.A. or California?
2: Well, uh, you can check out our website at noolympicsla.com and uh check out our twitter account which is also Mm -hmm. twitter no olympics la um we've been doing a lot of actions online to try and spread information and to talk about things uh like how we feel the 84 games really laid the groundwork for uh the la riots rebellion as you want to call it and uh part of that was just the city ignoring the people that live in it uh in favor of the interests of, you know, billionaires and the police, and uh, that people don't like that when you do that. They're not stoked that you gave them an Olympics if they have
3: nowhere to live. Right.
1: Mm.
3: And now- I think national conversation is also really important in this case because um, another thing that you know we're we sort of assume is true, uh, and also haven't seen local press follow this thread very closely either, but, you know, that the Olympics are part of Eric Garcetti's national ambition um, for higher political office. And so we think it's important for him to see how people respond to this situation nationally and for him to know that not just the city of L.A., but the entire country is, is looking at him and watching how he handles this.
0: Yeah. And playing too cozy with Trump at this moment will absolutely spearfish any effort at national ambitions, I think, going forward.
2: Yeah, I mean, that he thinks this is the way to national ambition, I think, sort of speaks to his uh, fundamental misunderstanding of what people in L.A. want. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he we we were really particularly upset about uh, there was a you know, there was right when the ice raids started really happening and people were being separated from their families, thrown out of their homes. uh, He held La La Land Day. So Mm, just the visual of him, you know, playing the piano and kind of like smiling and singing while people are being deported and held illegally and held against their will snatched
3: from their homes and in front of like dropping their kids off at school.
2: Yeah. And he's, you know, he's also not going to be the mayor in 2028. So a thing we've been talking about a lot is the monorail episode of the Simpsons, you know, where
3: to be fair, we've been talking about every episode of the Simpsons. (laughs) Yes.
0: But I, I get the way the monorail one has a particular resonance at this moment. You don't want to end up like Ogdenville or North Haverbrook.
2: Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And we've seen Ogdenville and North Haverbrook. We've seen, you know, Sochi and Rio and other recent Olympics have gone particularly badly, I think, for those cities. So this sort of exceptionalist claim L.A., you know, L.A. bid people are making of like, we'll be the ones to fix it and solve it. It's like, well, look at all the other problems in our city that we can't fix or solve and people aren't even attempting to fix or solve because they're too preoccupied with having a big party that costs a lot of money Mm -hmm. uh, and nobody will be able to get into except rich people
0: yeah if debt displacement and the militarization of public space is a daily problem in normal times then people have to think about what the olympics will do to those issues i mean the stress is unfathomable We'll be back with our interview with Anne Orchier and Molly Lambert in just a moment. But first, a quick word from The Nation magazine. Look, we need alternative media right now. We need to get news out into people's hands. The Nation magazine has been doing it for 150 years, and we ain't stopping. Can't stop, won't stop. Support The Nation magazine. It is more needed than ever. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. That's thenation.com slash subscribe. Read my stuff. Read John Nichols. Read Collier Meyerson. I mean, we're talking... Some amazing, amazing writers doing the best work on the political left. Go to the slash subscribe. Can I ask you one question that has yeah, nothing to do with any of this? Yeah, for sure. Okay. I, this is just my you know, that's one of the good things about a podcast is that it can meander just for a moment at the end and talk about things that have nothing to do with what we're talking about, and people take that as completely fine and normal. Um I really think that. Some of the best nonfiction writing I've read in the last decade, and I mean this very sincerely, were your Mad Men write-ups for Granland.
2: Well, that's really nice of you. Thank you very much. I mean,
0: just beautiful, beautiful writing, incredibly evocative. And I've wanted to ask you um, two things. Like, one, do you miss doing those? How draining were those to do? How intense were those? Because that was like also very intense writing. And and the second question I had was, uh, what did you think of the last episode? Um, Especially uh, now with some distance, looking back.
2: Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't I don't miss doing it because I, uh, the big problem with it was that we didn't have screeners, so uh, Mark Lasanti and I, who both recapped Mad Men, were doing it just overnight on Sunday nights, on the oh, nights that their show was on. <laughs> and uh, I don't miss the the sort of exhaustive aspect of it, but yeah, I mean, it was it was very fun and satisfying for me to do. Um, and, you know, honestly, one of the reasons I loved writing about Mad Men was because it was a show that was so much about sort of pol- about politics and about racial politics and sexual politics and things that I'm interested in just from a historic viewpoint and also just sort of looking at how how little those things have actually changed since the 1960s and how we like to think we're so much more progressive now. But Honestly, we have barely moved and it's backslid a lot, obviously, in the past year or so, more than the past year. But, um, but it also does feel kind of exciting in this way where it feels like maybe people are kind of yearning to be radicalized again and to feel like they can change things
1: mm-hmm. and not
2: just sort of feel like history is going to trample them. Yeah. Um, that there can be individual players in, in the story of of their own lives and of history
0: write our own narratives in um, that last episode how's it sticking with you now oh, like I a year know, after the fact
2: that last episode um, although actually that area Esalen where Don goes uh, to the sort of meditation center has been affected a lot right now by natural disasters because oh, geez um that is another california problem we have that we didn't even really get into about the olympics but obviously there's like a lot of things that could happen in california naturally that would affect uh any kind of big public event, such as a drought or an earthquake and um esalen is currently uh a lot of big service having tourism issues because nobody can reach it there's like a bridge that collapsed in the middle and they're having mudslides and stuff Sorry, I made this really depressing. <laughs> no, no, no.
0: This is actually really important because the environmental impact of the Olympics, just, they always try to dress it up in this kind of green language. Like these will be the green games. And the reality is is really quite different.
3: And that's what they said about Tokyo. They made that promise and it just turned out or it just came out that they're using Malaysian rainforest wood um, to build... You know, to realize the vision of this uh, architectural centerpiece. Yeah, I just yeah. can't
0: believe that Tokyo, the story of Kenno Enna. You guys familiar with that story very no. briefly? It's one that worth carrying around in your back pocket for the elevator conversations. Uh, Kenno Enna was displaced from his home for the 1964 Olympics. And, you know, he is able to come back from that, build a decent life for himself, get a small business. And now that small business is being torn down for the 2020
3: oh, God.
0: Olympics. Oh, God. So, so it's like that, to have this happen in his life twice, uh, 40 plus years or 50 plus years apart. I mean, it's oh, staggering.
2: Sorry. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think the real lesson of Mad Men also is just to uh, interrogate what you're being sold and mm. Uh, why certain things are so sellable and who's actually making a profit on those things, you know, and if you're selling people insecurity and fear and uh, telling them that they have no choice in the, uh, you know, in anything, then uh, that sucks. And we feel like people should be more accountable, um, especially if they want to be public figures and they want people to vote for them, then, they need to engage with what cities actually need and not just
3: what they think will look good on a resume. Right. Mm. Eric Arsetti ran on a platform of ending homelessness in L.A. We just found out that in the last year, the homelessness count has risen by 23 percent. And it just feels like he's moved on from that vision. And now when he talks about the future of L.A., it's much more in line with this bid committee vision where LA is basically San Francisco it's a home for like hit mm-hmm. young multicultural you know elite tech workers um, he wants you know it, it seems like where he's actually putting his effort and work it isn't becoming the mayor who ends homelessness but becoming the mayor who fixes the Olympics
0: wow there's a Mad Men connection to this too because LA played this really interesting role in that series
1: mm-hmm. of
0: kind of like this fantasy reality gap for Don Draper, and you could you will see, if you haven't seen it yet, the way the Olympics are being sold as being good for the vision of L.A. as opposed to the reality that you guys are talking about, like homelessness and displacement and the rest of it, and more like the La La Land Olympics.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, if you go to downtown L.A. right now, you can just see it is such an extreme gap between the people who have nothing and the people who have, who have so much money And, you know, it's like very block by block, you will see just that there are these incredibly expensive lofts that, you know, only really rich people can afford. And then there's a tent village like two blocks down. And, you know, we've been working a lot with some members of Skid Row recently. And, you know, they're the people who are really the vulnerable people who know that the Olympics are not going to be good for them, you know, that that's not who it's going to benefit. It's not gonna help them get housed or you know help anyone not get displaced uh if Airbnb comes in you know um so yeah I mean I think we are just encouraging people to kind of look beyond the the sales pitch of the Olympics and really look at you know look go to North Haverbrook in Shelbyville mm-hmm. and Shelbyville right. see see what happened there and uh as, you know, and we, we find the Boston No Olympics movement really inspiring because uh, we think it's cool that a city was able to mobilize and get this thing taken down that people didn't actually want.
0: Yeah, and that's, that really is what it takes. And that's the, also the only thing that's ever going to change the IOC is when they realize that they uh, cannot find a place that's not an autocratic dictatorship to call the Olympics home. Hey, I really want to thank you guys for the time um, Molly, I know you're a music writer And I'm guessing since you're a friend of Molly That you also write about, uh, you also like music um, We always like playing intro and outro music For the show that people actually listen to and like So what what's your guys' uh, what's your theme song?
2: Oh, I would like to say that our theme song is uh, Too Short, Blow the Whistle I go on and on Can't
1: understand how I last so long
2: have superpowers. Wrap oh, so there's kind of like a sports connection, but also we're, we're going to be the whistleblowers who, uh, yeah, I'm down.
0: Wow. <laughs> That's very Oakland, but I'm feeling it. <laughs> and I do believe too short was part of the warriors, uh, championship parade. I think he had his own bus. Yeah. So that this all works very well with some of the themes of this week's show. Hey, yeah,
3: I mean, <laughs> we're across I'm... California. We support high yeah yeah excellent california coalition
2: yeah. um can I, can I also butt in real quick um there's 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 <laughs> some
0: C- can you identify yourself please for my audience let me
2: let me well, just McDonald's. Yeah. I, yeah the mcdonald's late breaking news sorry yeah, yeah. News, i'll throw yeah. this in which is that the reason the 84 olympics were profitable right yeah it's because of the mcdonald's was <laughs> because mcdonald's came in at the last second and t- and footed the bill and so that was the reason that the 84 Olympics were able to turn a profit was because they branded it as McDonald's and they branded McDonald's as America and mm-hmm. they uh, saved the day. And McDonald's just announced that they are not going to sponsor the Olympics for the first time in a billion years. Wow. Um, wow. So that is off the table for <laughs> for saving the day. So You don't um, think
0: In-N-Out Burger can uh, fill the <laughs> gap?
3: Hey, In-N-Out Burger- In-N-Out is legit. Is I
0: love success. In-N-Out. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> In-N-Out Burger is for people who want to be served by, like, really good-natured teens who yeah. get paid a living wage and love their jobs.
0: <laughs> I think In-N-Out Burger are for people who oppose the LA Olympics. We yes, should yes, brand exactly. that as the they anti-Olympic burger site.
3: <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah, they should sponsor you guys.
3: They should. We're having a big teach-in next Sunday, a big like public event in teach-in in Sycamore Grove Park, uh, and maybe we should ask them to cater it. Can you yeah. give
0: us the time and the address for our LA listenership?
3: Sure. So it's uh, from noon to 3 p.m. at Sycamore Grove Park, which is, I think it's 4702 North Figueroa. Um, so it's basically, it's, it's Avenue 47 and Figueroa uh, between Mount Washington and Highland Park
0: fantastic hey everybody th- thank you so much for joining us on the edge of sports podcast
2: thank you so much thank you this is really great. an honor yeah. to come on
0: uh, big- we, we will have too short on the outro <laughs> all
3: right <Yeah. laughs> there's a lot of fist pumping in the room awesome
0: <laughs> i th- thank thank y'all so much really appreciate it well
2: thanks man thank you
0: Now it's time for the Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down Award. Just Stand Up Award was so easy. It goes to the WNBA Seattle Storm, who are going to donate $5 from every ticket sold for an upcoming game to Planned Parenthood. It's a beautiful act, and when I think about players on the storm like Sue Bird and Becky Stewart, Becky Stewart is somebody who was live-tweeting from the airports earlier this year when Donald Trump was trying to impose his Muslim ban. It's kind of a beautiful thing. It's also beautiful because you have to ask yourself the question, why does the Seattle Storm even exist? Well, the Seattle Storm exists because... The team decided, and Clay Bennett decided that they would not move with the Seattle SuperSonics to Oklahoma City uh, to be the women's team in Oklahoma City to go alongside the Thunder. Because remember, all WNBA teams are also um, usually run by uh, the the ownership group that's in charge of the men's team. So it really is uh, something like the Seattle Storm are the independent WNBA team apart from Clay Bennett, who is one of the most right-wing owners in sports. Again, he owns the Oklahoma City Thunder. So the Storm are independent, unbossed, and unbowed, and now they're giving $5 of every ticket to Planned Parenthood. That could not be more badass. Just stand up, because you're standing up. Seattle Storm, can I get an amen? Amen. Now we got the Just Sit Down Award.
1: Sit your ass
0: down. And this is also so incredibly easy. The Just Sit Down Award, it goes to former NBA commissioner David Stern for his comments about sportscaster Bryant Gumbel. Let's play a clip of what David Stern said.
1: How did it make you feel when Bryant Gumbel dubbed you, quote, unquote, a modern plantation overseer, unquote? My My reaction was that Brian Gumbel is an idiot (laughs) and that I considered it a badge of honor. He was repeating something that the players' representatives had said in the middle of a lockout. Oh, really? He was like uh, just regurgitating something. Oh, He's the same guy that did a feature on our players and tried to sensationalize their nightlife and, Mm. you know, even though he happens to be black... was talking about our guys and the women they hang out with, etc. I have no respect, whatever, for him. So that didn't upset me at all. Wow. Okay. That that comes as, as a surprise because I just felt he kind of like went in. No, it's, he 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 wasn't the first. You know, when you're involved in a harsh couple of collective bargaining agreements and negotiations and lockouts, mm-hmm. uh, you're going to get the race card played against you. Okay. Uh, but that doesn't. That never bothered me. Gotcha. Even though he, it's a little different coming from him because of who he is in the platform. My my response was I have done more for people of color than he has.
0: My God. A couple things about this from David Stern. First and foremost, I'm just sitting here laughing my ass off at the thought of David Stern still being commissioner of the NBA right now in 2017, and how he would manage the fact that so many more players are political, so many more players are quote-unquote woke, so many more players are unafraid. The commissioner's office. I think that would happen whether Stern was in there or not, because players have been formed by social media and the Black Lives Matter movement, much more so than they've been formed by Adam Silver replacing David Stern. And the idea of David Stern trying to manage players who I would argue, as Bryant Gumbel said, he has always viewed with a profound amount of paternalism, would be hilarious. Second response to this. Is there's something that really pissed me off about it because you can criticize Brian Gumble all you want. That's fine and good, but Brian Gumble is going through a particularly rough time right now. Uh, a very dear friend of his, who we've spoken about on the show, uh, Frank Deford, who did Real Sports with Brian Gumble, just passed away. Brian Gumble did the eulogy for Frank Deford mere days ago at his funeral service, and the idea that David Stern is like, ha, now's a good time to go after Brian Gumble. I don't know, that's just kind of gross to me. Now, the last point is this. White people, don't say that. Don't say I've done more for people of color than he has. And I got to tell you the story it reminded me of. Someone who we had on this show once is a guy named Walter Beach who played for the Cleveland Browns alongside Jim Brown, tremendous thinker, tremendous human being. Walter Beach told this unbelievable story about him getting in an argument with Art Modell, the owner of the Cleveland Browns, and Art Modell speaking down to him, and Walter Beach saying to him, like, look, I think the way you're acting is honestly paternalistic and racist. And Walter Beach standing up and walking out of the room. And he told the story of Art Modell storming after him, stomping down the halls, everybody's head peeking out of their office door, yelling, how dare you say that? I've given more to the NAACP than you ever have. It's like, you want a cookie? Unbelievable. So just sit your ass down, David Stern. And now it's time on the part of this week's show that we call Kaepernick Watch. The latest issues, comings, and goings. With free agent quarterback Colin Kaepernick and his political pariah status relative to the National Football League. Uh, First and foremost, Kaepernick Charity News. Uh, He gave $25,000 this past week uh, to build community gardens in North Minneapolis. And I wanted to mention that because I went to college in the Twin Cities. And North Minneapolis is a food desert It's like there's nowhere to go to get fresh food if you're a young person and that's been a big part of the Kaepernick mission has been about food literacy and nutrition and so to see him investing in those kinds of things people who can't afford to go to Whole Foods just bought by Amazon by the way people who want to build community markets as an alternative to corporate organic foodery uh, this is a big deal and so props to Colin Kaepernick for that the other part of Kaepernick watch this week is a friend of the show Michael Bennett going ham in support of Colin Kaepernick at a news conference, wearing an I Know My Rights t-shirt and hat, both of which are put out by Kaepernick and his organization that tries to educate and mentor young people. And one of the things that Michael Bennett said was, obviously there's an elephant in the room why Kaepernick isn't signed, and most people know why. I've said this several times, and I'm not afraid to say it. I think race and politics and sports is something people don't want to hear about, nor do people want to be a part of. And wow, that's a pretty powerful thing to say. And I'm proud of Michael Bennett for standing up for Colin Kaepernick. And I don't think this is the last time we're gonna hear about the Michael Bennett, Colin Kaepernick nexus. This episode of the Edge of Sports podcast is brought to you by The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. The Dig is hosted by journalist Daniel Denver and features in-depth interviews with the smartest voices on the left, from Corey Robin and Linda Sarsour to Kianga Yamada-Taylor and Glenn Greenwald, discussing socialism, conservatism, immigration, mass incarceration, education, the media, and more. Find The Dig on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Ladies and gentlemen,
2: welcome to the main event.
1: Let's get ready to rumble!
0: And now, my take on the Conor McGregor-Floyd Mayweather fight. If it happens, and I guess it is going to happen. Look, first and foremost, I feel like I'm contractually obliged to say something about this. Otherwise, I'm just telling y'all right now, I would not pay for this fight. I have no interest in this fight. I think it is about as interesting as when they used to have those boxing matches between William the Refrigerator Perry and the Newt Bowl. This is some silly, silly stuff. Second thing I want to say before I say a word about this fight is that I think Floyd Mayweather is really... One of the worst people ever produced by sports The issues of violence against women The letters that his own children have sent to him I mean, you don't have to go too deep into the Google well To see that this is somebody who I mean, frankly, I just don't want to be financially supporting And Conor McGregor, I don't know much about him, but I mean, he kind of seems like a horse's ass, too. So I don't know. It's almost like wanting uh, mutually assured destruction or reminds me of the Dick Cheney-Joe Lieberman debates from 2000. I don't really care who wins. I just kind of want them both to lose. Another thing I want to say before I predict this fight is I don't talk about MMA or boxing too much on this show. But maybe I should. I mean, you probably get a glimpse of this when I talk about Ali, but I'm a big fan of this stuff. I take it very seriously. I grew up around boxing in a very serious way. And that's one of the reasons why I find this fight so absurd. Because Floyd Mayweather is a boxer. And Conor McGregor isn't. And so we're supposed to pay all this money to watch someone who is a boxer against someone who's not a boxer. Now, let's all keep in mind, please, this is not a mixed martial arts fight. There won't be any kicking. There won't be any takedowns. This is just straight-up boxing. And the one advantage I see for Conor McGregor at all against Floyd Mayweather is that Conor McGregor is 28 and Floyd Mayweather is 40. That's a pretty significant age gap. But at the same time, I don't see a world where Conor McGregor lands one punch unless Floyd throws this fight, or lets him get a couple punches in so he can have a rematch and make nine more figures and maybe then a best of three after that. So let me tell you what what I think right now. One, I'm not paying for this garbage. Two, if Conor McGregor wins, I will absolutely believe 5 million percent. It's because Floyd Mayweather let him win so he could have more paydays. So I don't take that. I wouldn't even take that seriously as a result. And three, if Floyd Mayweather goes there and actually fights his fight, Conor McGregor will not land one punch. It is an absurd, idiotic spectacle. And what else can I say about it? It says a lot about the state of boxing that we're even interested in the result. Gee, that was a cheery note. No, but I'm not even joking around. Like, I I bet when it's all said and done, I will have enjoyed Floyd Mayweather versus The Big Show at WrestleMania than Floyd Mayweather versus Conor McGregor. Okay, my producer Dan is making the point that MMA might be tougher than boxing and Conor McGregor can take a lot of punishment, but that's Floyd. Floyd largely doesn't necessarily even do knockouts. He'll bob and weave and punch McGregor for 12 rounds, and McGregor, unless Floyd lets him, McGregor will not land a punch. I can't stand Floyd Mayweather personally, but I will also say— that he's arguably the best defensive fighter in the history of the sport. He's that good. 49-0. It is what it is. Conor McGregor ain't landing a punch unless Floyd wants him to. I'd rather watch William Refrigerator Perry against Manute Bull, but Manute Bull died.
1: Makes me sad. Basketball may be a game of Giants, but there is one man who stands above the rest. Manute Bull. I'm
0: excited for Bowl Bowl. I want the Bowl Bowl era to start right away. I love watching little YouTube clips of Bowl Bowl. And I remember when there was a nightclub on U Street called Manute Bowls because he bought like some space on you right and right on the same block as Ben's Chili Bowl. So you had Ben's Chili Bowl, Bowl Bowl. And I went there and had drinks more than once. Oh, man. The new Bowl spot just made me feel cool being in there. Yo, people got to know about old school D.C., U Street, when you go to Manute Bull's spot. And he'd be there, like, at the door saying what's up to people. Hey, <laughs> I'll tell you this, too. One more Manute Bowl thing. The most unpolitically correct thing I ever heard in a broadcast. I can't believe I've been looking for the tape of this forever. If anybody can find it, please let me know. I went to college, like I said, in the Twin Cities. People might know that about me. The local play-by-play guy in the Twin Cities was Kevin Harlan who now, of course, is insanely famous. Back then, he was just like this incredibly young, prodigy announcer. I mean, just you could tell right away, this guy is amazing. And it was Kevin Harlan uh, and Kevin McHale, which was a great tandem doing the games. It was a lot of fun, which you had to have when you're watching Pooh Richardson on the court. So, they played the Golden State Warriors one one evening, and Manute Bull hit like four three-pointers in a quarter. And this was back when, first of all, people weren't shooting a lot of three-pointers. It was part of Don Nelson's, like, master thing where he would have Manute Bull come up the court late on offense and have him be the trailer, and they would throw him the ball, and he was shooting threes. And people just didn't make as many threes back then, so it was crazy. I mean, even seeing a guard hit two threes in a quarter, you'd be like, oh, my God, he's on fire. And here's Manute Bull hitting, like, four threes in a quarter. And on the fourth three... Uh, He looks up to the sky, and the crowd's going nuts, and Kevin Harlan is screaming. And Kevin Harlan says, Manute Bull looks to the heavens and prays to his gods, whomever they may be. And he's saying, gods, keep the triples coming. (laughs) That blew my mind. What was Kevin Harlan talking about? Praying to his gods, whomever they may be. That just cracked
1: me up. I saw three girls walking down the mall. They stared at him, he stared back. They were like a chili. Uh, that's the
0: fact? Uh, said, Bam, bam, thank you, ma'am. If you got the
1: jelly, I've got the jam. You yeah. can hip, you can hop, you can body rock. Take, Take it, to it to the hoop, it'll surely get uh, blocked.
0: Hey, this is the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Ziron Thank you so much to everybody for joining us here this week. Everybody, check this out. We have a hotline number, 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-3343. Call in, and we're going to play our favorite calls on next week's show. I am saying right now that after watching LeBron James average a triple-double in the NBA Finals, I'm ready to have the GOAT conversation. GOAT, greatest of all time. Michael Jordan, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, maybe it's LeBron James. I mean, the fact that the Golden State Warriors had to add Kevin Durant to a 73-win team just to beat LeBron James. Oh, my goodness. That's Exhibit 1A in a GOAT argument. We needed Durant to beat this guy, even though we won 73 games. So I got LeBron as my GOAT, greatest of all time. You disagree? Give us a call and tell me why. 401-426-3343. We will play the tastiest calls on next week's show. Hey, that's all I got for this week. Thank you so much to my co-producers, Daniel Baker and David Tigabu. Thank you so much to Anne Orchier and Molly Lambert. Thank you to all of our listeners out there. We love each and every one of you. If you like the show, please go to iTunes, give us a rating, write a comment, please tell a friend. All of that stuff matters a great deal. We are out of here. Stay frosty, everybody. Peace.